0: Hello and welcome to the Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. In this episode, we're following up on last week's primer on inflation from Paul Donovan, where he explained the reasons why inflation should fall in Western economies in the second half and on into 2023. Paul also outlined why it's sensible to position for inflation rather than positioning for recession. And we thought today we would dig a little deeper into what that process can and should look like for smart investors. In a moment, we'll consider some specifics about the fixed income space. But let's start with an overview, first of all, from Mark Anderson, co-head global asset allocation at UBS. Mark, a warm welcome back to the programme. First up, At a time when inflation is high and fears about central bank overreactions are driving markets, how can investors best capture opportunities?
1: So the first thing I'd probably say is that this is an extraordinarily difficult time to be invested because we have inflation essentially driving markets, which has meant that we have seen kind of a correlated move down recently in both bonds and equities. There are certainly opportunities out there, but I think the first thing I'd stress is that this means that we are in a bit of a different world than what we've been in over the last couple of decades and opportunities might be a bit more difficult to spot per se. But you're right. So higher inflationary environment, even if we are likely to come down from current peaks, means that it is more difficult to some extent because central banks are starting to work a bit against us as they're trying to basically get that inflation rate down but it also means that interest rates have been moving higher which means that a certain part of the equity market as one example that will be doing better so we've highlighted things such as value-oriented equities which is the opposite of say more tech or growth oriented equities that typically fall in times of of rising rates and we continue to say things like such as commodities will be good beneficiaries of the current environment commodity-oriented currencies but also uh, things such as energy equities that has been in our portfolios for for longer.
0: Well, yeah, and I find it really interesting to kind of go through a few broad brush investment ideas that speak to the, the, the big theme that you've outlined there for us, Mark. Um, and, and tell us a bit about what should come first. I guess uh, investors, clients will come to you and say, well, look, you know, I'm interested in what, building up some portfolio hedges maybe front and centre. Maybe talk to us about that first of all.
1: I think that is true. I think the diversification topic is probably the first thing that concerns people, because when equity is now falling, bonds are not rising as they kind of usually do. And that's where both the whole construction of a portfolio, that's something we spend a lot of time on trying to get right. And the second thing, obviously, is somewhat related, which is hedges, which is basically saying if that base case scenario doesn't come true in the event of either inflation being a bit more sticky to the point where central banks will need to Over That's bad for the economy, bad for most assets. That's certainly one risk out there. But frankly speaking, both the risks that are relating to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but equally the zero-COVID policy in China, all limit the supply of commodities and thereby putting, again, additional upward pressure on inflation. So those kind of things in combination means that hedges is not a bad thing these days. And what we have been basically doing is saying things such as U.S. dollars is something that we like both benefiting from a more volatile environment, but also from increasing interest rates in the U.S. Commodities have proven to be a very important hedge for us and our portfolios over the last 3, 6, uh, 12 months. So oriented, commodity-oriented positioning, again, benefiting from from this type of, of environment. But again, you have to think very smartly about it because if economic growth falters, you might not only be safe in in places like commodities. So we try to do many of those Different things and I'd also say things such as hedge funds is really an important component in a diversified portfolio these days Uh, and it's certainly also things such as private market investments, private debt, private equity or or similar that also does something different in in a portfolio context.
0: Yeah, and I find it interesting. We often come back to these sort of very fundamental uh, principles about diversification, for example. Another one is just how to navigate volatility. And I suppose it is also worth pointing out that there remains a great deal of volatility around. There's a lot of uncertainty, which is economic in character. It's also geopolitical. We look at what's happening in Ukraine, for example. Where we see an extended risk of elevated volatility... What should investors think about? And I know it's important maybe to reconsider liquidity in that context, because that may mean that you're less likely to have to be forced into selling, for example. Tell us a bit about how having a robust liquidity strategy can help a little bit navigate some of that volatility.
1: You're right, Tom. Because the the difficult thing is that, as tempting as it appears in such an environment, just to put all your money into kind of cash. Unfortunately, when you have these relatively high inflation rates, it means that you're kind of eroding your purchasing power by that inactivity in itself. So you somehow need to come up with a better strategy. And I think part of that is to think through. We have a what we call the wealth way framework where we talk about liquidity. So the money you need in kind of for expenditures over the, the next couple of years and then we have kind of a longevity how you need to invest to have money for your life kind of this is more kind of retirement thinking so a bit of a long horizon and even beyond maybe for next generations and i think by splitting the world up in in this way we can say well as long as we have kind of cash and liquidity for expenditures that are coming over the next few years, that means that we can start to have a long investment horizon where something like equities per se becomes a bit less risky because we don't have to worry about the day-to-day market moves, volatility, but we can be reasonably comfortable about part of the equity market that we think within A multiple-year horizon, again, will give us positive expected return also after inflation and thereby serving kind of a longer-term financial plan as well. So I think that's one way that we're trying to guide our clients through these periods that inevitably gets volatile and that we see a couple of times every year.
0: Well, yeah, and keeping a bit of a longer-term lens, it's interesting, isn't it, that in exactly these kinds of periods where we have volatile markets, this uncertainty of of all different kinds of characters – it can also offer what a more sort of attractive entry point to some other longer term themes that have you know, very strong fundamentals at their core. I know you mentioned equities in, in brief earlier, but it is interesting that there's some value propositions, aren't there, in stocks that maybe it's a good time to get involved with because we are dealing with exactly this sort of uncertainty and volatility.
1: I think there's a good way of thinking about it, because to some extent, if the key underlying risk for markets at the moment is inflation and what central banks and others might do in response to kind of elevated inflation, you'd actually be able to find some companies that naturally will be growing their earnings with inflation and therefore providing a bit of an inherent hedge. And part of that is companies that have a good deal of pricing power, essentially meaning that you can pass on that cost to consumers if we were to see commodity prices uh, rising further. And you'd even be smart to think about some of them, such as I've mentioned energy equities before, that essentially in the risk case, you would basically see something like energy prices continuing upwards, potentially on the back of a a further degree of sanctions in relation to the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So, so I think there are certainly ways that you can kind of build your way out of this. And I'd also say that we like a bit more of what we call these traditional value-oriented companies, typically a bit less expensive than some of maybe the more growth technology-oriented companies that they basically probably had a bit of an excessive return throughout the period of of, of COVID. And now we're seeing a bit of a snapback of, of that. But of course, within that segment, there are some Greater longer-term opportunities as well, and there will be areas where some names will be overpunished, and therefore also a bit of an opportunity to pick some some of that value up that's that's becoming uh, available.
0: Now, Mark, I was browsing your your near namesake, Mark Haefely, of course, the chief investment officer for UBS Global Wealth Management, reading one of his monthly letters, and he touched upon this idea of the era of security, and it's something that I've we've, has cropped up actually across a couple of our programs in recent weeks and months. And it is interesting. This is, I guess, a longer term consequence of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, of course. And it speaks to this focus or a refocusing not just to governments, but of big corporates on the need to optimise security, stability over other concerns, whether that's price or simple efficiency. Can you just reflect a little bit on that and tell us why this is important as another one of these longer term themes and something that's important? It should inform all asset allocation decisions potentially in the medium term now.
1: I think that's true in so many ways. It both uh, impacts how companies will be spending, therefore an opportunity set for some companies that operate in that space. But I think also the way we think about economic growth and inflation. So maybe let me try to to reflect a bit on how how I think through it. So basically the invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia has obviously shown the importance of not being too dependent on something as energy. So energy security, is obviously one thing that is very much top of mind and similar when it comes to defense spending. So basically the ability to to defend yourself, so a security topic on on its own. And what this leads to, and, and also expands into areas such as cybersecurity, but what it leads to is that we will now see an investment over the next decade, if not more, of investing into areas such as providing energy security, maybe nearshoring so that you're not too reliant on global supply chains from maybe countries where you are less certain about uh, the stability in that delivery. So basically, it means that we will see the deglobalization trend will lead to investments into areas that kind of increases this degree of security. And frankly speaking, will probably be a limited boost to growth, but potentially actually push up inflation to some extent, because we will need more commodities to basically build additional supply chains to, to some extent. But for investors, there's certainly an opportunity to invest into things such as the energy security, energy transition, cyber security, defence security. And we have kind of put together investment themes that also list the companies and and finds ways in which we can kind of support that through investment links via our clients.
0: Mark Anderson. Well, for more on the fixed income picture specifically, next let's hear from Michaela Simon-Howard, analyst with UBS in London and lead author of a recent UBS primer on thematic sustainable fixed income. Michaela, welcome to the programme. So what makes a good investment strategy in that space? Or actually, Michaela, before that even, what are thematic sustainable fixed income investments?
2: Well, that's a very good question. So it's not a terminology which is widely known in the market, but it's rather because something we developed as a strategy here at UBS. So UBS launched in 2018, the first fully sustainable investment focused cross asset allocation for private clients. And our aim is really to continuously expand the range of asset classes and investment solutions for our sustainable portfolios. So we have sustainable equity and fixed income solutions available. And traditionally, when we look at the market, the equity side has been more developed with regard to diversified investment strategies whereas the fixed income market has been lagging a bit the development of sustainable investments. This is changing actually quite rapidly And this is why we created for our portfolio solutions this so-called sustainable fixed income investment strategy, the thematic one. We started off in 2018 to invest in green bonds, as these ones were the most liquid, and and the market segment, which was geared up to to grow the most at that point in time. And this is what happened. The market has grown strongly, and based on the green bond model, there are also other called use of proceeds bonds and labor bonds, which were developed. So, to being able to invest in these instruments, we decided to expand our green bond investment strategy to include other use of proceeds bonds, like social and sustainability, and also sustainability-linked bonds, and other labeled fixed income instruments. So, this is a description of our thematic sustainable fixed income strategy
0: yeah absolutely. And I wanted to ask you maybe next more broadly about progress in this in this space because if we look at sustainable investing solutions in fixed income, they they have evolved fast. Um, it seems to me green bonds sort of led the way maybe in that in that evolution. Would you go along with that analysis?
2: absolutely well indeed green bonds led the way and si solutions in the fixed income have evolved fast but actually only since 2014 and 15. green bonds exist already much longer and in fact since 2006 when the european investment bank and the world bank issued the first bonds that the foundation of these instruments coincided with the start of the financial and then sovereign crisis So, it's less surprising that investors did not really pay attention to these investment instruments. But then, after the financial crisis finished, so around 2014-15, the green bond market kick-started again to develop and grow, and then other use of proceed bonds were added, like the social and sustainability bonds, and later, in 2019, sustainability-linked bonds were developed, and which represent now the fastest-growing instrument in the sustainability fixed
0: income market and it's interesting obviously i think green bonds is a kind of a well understood uh, concept but it is important here to to bear in mind the the wide and seemingly constantly widening range of options in the piece whether that is green bonds sustainability bonds social bonds others that you've already briefly touched upon There, there are a lot of options in the space aren't there
2: Absolutely. So as you say, so we differentiate really the green and uh, social sustainability bonds. These are the use of proceed bonds. Here the focus is on the underlying assets and projects which get uh, refinanced via these bonds and they help companies on their transition path to become more sustainable. Sustainability link bonds, you also just mentioned, are in the focus lately and they are basically focused on key performance indicator structures what does this mean this means like companies want to show how they're changing their operations how they become more environmental or socially focused but next to these there's like these are the bond structures but you also have loan formats of these uh, two instruments and then we also see development happening in the structured environment as well and we expect more innovation to come in in the near future
0: well, on that point about innovation specifically, I did want to ask you, Michelle, a little bit about what is driving innovation in this space? Clearly, there are lots of forces at play. Is it something that's driven primarily by, I don't know, regulatory concerns, perhaps? Is it political in character? What's driving uh, movement here? Or is it more of a consumer-driven play? Or is it is it actually, as so often, a, a little bit of all of these things?
2: It is, as you just lately said, like it's it's a bit of all of that. It's it's a real combination of demand and offering here. And quite importantly, what we see is that it's actually the issuers themselves who drive quite a lot of the innovation because they aim to differentiate themselves. They want to promote their sustainability frameworks and their ambitions. And also they want to access a wider and more demanding and critical investor. And for that, they really need to develop new instruments which really reflect what they're doing with their operations, but also with their products to meet the growing demand, as you said, by the um, investors, regulators and politicians.
0: One sort of notion that we often come back to on this programme is this kind of quest for, for impact. And it's such a key notion. So many more investors now keen to talk about and learn more about impact in terms of their investments. And I wanted to ask you, Michelle, a little bit about whether, well, are these impact investments? I mean, I guess that's a fairly fundamental question. It might be a slightly naive one, but I wanted to put it to you.
2: No, it's not a naive question at all. I come across this quite often and I think there is some confusion in the market about what impact investing or impact actually means. Impact is not the equivalent to transparency and I think there's the first part of the confusion. It is not simple that we have a better reporting of outcomes and and what is done, which defines the impact. Impact really means that behaviors and shortfalls in the market are corrected. Typically, impact investments are more complex. They focus on particular projects with which intentional and measurable changes are achieved. These need to be constantly monitored and these results need to be verifiable by third parties in in very simplistic words, right? Sustainable bonds are important as they deliver greater transparency, but they do not account in our framework as impact investing strategies. We are part of a signatory of the impact investing principles by the IC. So we take impact investing very serious, and we want to grow this market. But at the moment, most impact investment solutions are really focused on private equity, particular and specific engagements strategy, for example, because these are quite complex structures in the background.
0: Hayler, Simon Howard, And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.